0: Oh, I've been thinking.
2: Oh, what do you want to do there for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Hello, and welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time around, we are looking at West Side Story, and we have a guest along. To do that, so in addition to myself and ever-present co-host Trey Hooks, Hello. we are very happy to welcome back Paul Spataro of Is It Jaws and many other podcasts. Welcome back, Paul.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I'm still trying to remember did had I mentioned to you that I love this movie, or did you just think, oh, West Side Story is a good one to invite Paul? Because I'm not sure. I think you mentioned it when we covered Gone with the Wind. Okay. See, I I was hoping that there was like a level of psychicness to it.
2: Yeah, I couldn't remember if you mentioned it with *Gone with the Wind* or not, but you definitely mentioned it when you uh, brought me onto *Isa Jaws* to discuss *Singing in the Rain*.
1: Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah, because we discussed uh, musicals in general, and a lot of people's general distaste of musicals because it just seems so silly that people would get up and sing and dance the way they do. But this has always been. I love this movie a lot, so I could, I could go with that. There's, there's actually a Saturday Night Live skit uh, with Robert Downey Jr. where they really make fun of this, and Norm Macdonald is the leader of the gang, and they, uh, you know, the gang starts singing and dancing to everything, but he's like not in on the joke. So he's like, what, what, what the heck is that? What are you doing? And it's, it's very amusing if you, uh, if you get a kick out of this genre.
2: Okay. I should try to track that down at some point.
1: It's definitely available on YouTube.
2: All right. Uh, yeah, so for those who are unfamiliar with West Side Story, this is essentially Romeo and Juliet, but with 1950s New York street gangs. So we've got a movie that was co directed by Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise. Robbins really directed the musical sequences, and Wise directed the other sequences. And the writers. We've got a credit for uh, Arthur Lawrence as author of the book, a credit for Jerome Robbins as author of the play, and a credit for Ernest Lehman as author of the screenplay. And I'm not seeing any credit for William Shakespeare, where this (laughs) is definitely a Romeo and Juliet thing. One of the downfalls of public domain, I suppose, is people are not necessarily obligated to credit you as such. And this did come out in 1961, specifically October 18th, 1961. So it was a little late in that year, which is not uncommon for our award winners. It's fresh in the minds of the voters. So I will read the plot summary that is courteously provided by the various contributors to Wikipedia, and then we will dig into the discussion. Two teenage gangs struggle for control on the Upper West Side in New York in the 1950s. The Jets, a white gang led by Riff, brawl with the Sharks, a group of Puerto Ricans led by Bernardo. Lieutenant Schrank and Officer Krupke arrive and break it up. The Jets decide to challenge the Sharks to a rumble after an upcoming dance. Riff wants his best friend Tony, co-founder of the Jets who left the gang, to fight at the rumble. Riff invites Tony to the dance, but Tony tells Riff that he senses something important is coming which Riff suggests could happen at the dance. After more persuasion, Tony agrees to go. Bernardo's younger sister, Maria, tells her best friend and Bernardo's girlfriend, Anita, how excited she is about the dance. At the dance, the gangs and the girls refuse to intermingle. Tony arrives, and he and Maria fall in love, but Bernardo angrily demands that Tony stay away from her. Riff proposes a meeting with Bernardo at Doc's drugstore at midnight to settle the rules for the rumble. Maria is sent home. Anita argues that Bernardo was overprotective of Maria and they compare the advantages of Puerto Rico and the United States. Tony sneaks onto Maria's fire escape where they reaffirm their love. Krupke, who suspects the Jets are planning something, visits them and warns them not to cause trouble. The Sharks arrive and the gangs agree to have the showdown the following evening under the highway with a one-on-one fistfight. When Shrank arrives, the gangs feign friendship. Shrank orders the Sharks out and unsuccessfully tries to discover information about the fight. The next day at the bridal shop where they work, Anita accidentally tells Maria about the rumble. Tony arrives to see Maria. Anita, shocked, warns them about the consequences if Bernardo learns of their relationship. Maria makes Tony promise to prevent the rumble. Tony and Maria fantasize about their wedding. The gangs approach the area under the highway. Tony arrives to stop the fight, but Bernardo antagonizes him. Unwilling to watch Tony be humiliated, Riff initiates a knife fight. Tony tries to intervene which leads to Bernardo stabbing and killing Riff. Tony then kills Bernardo with Riff's knife, and a melee ensues. Police sirens blare, and everyone flees, leaving behind the dead bodies. Maria waits for Tony on the rooftop of her apartment building. Her fiancé, Chino, arrives and tells her what happened. When Tony arrives, he asks her forgiveness before he turns himself in to the police. Maria confirms her love for him and asks Tony to stay with her. The Jets and their new leader, Ice, reassemble outside a garage and focus on reacting to the police. Anybody's arrive and warn them that Chino was now after Tony with a gun ice sends the jets to warn tony a grieving anita enters the apartment while tony and maria are in the bedroom the lovers arrange to meet at docks where they will pick up getaway money to elope anita spots tony leaving through the window and chides maria for the relationship with bernardo's killer but maria convinces her to help them elope shrank arrives and questions maria about the rumble maria sends anita to tell tony that maria is detained for meeting him When Anita reaches Doc's, the Jets harass her until Doc intervenes. Anita angrily says that Chino has killed Maria. Doc banishes the Jets, gives Tony his getaway money in the basement, and delivers Anita's message. Tony, distraught, runs into the streets, shouting for Chino to kill him too. In the playground next to Doc's, Tony spots Maria and they run toward each other, only for Chino to shoot Tony. The gangs arrive to find Maria holding Tony, who dies in her arms. Maria stops the gangs from fighting, takes the gun from Chino and threatens to shoot everyone, blaming their hate for the deaths. Shrank, Krupke, and Doc arrive and the gangs form a funeral procession with Maria following. The police arrest Chino and lead him away. So that's the synopsis, although I would have mentioned earlier that Chino is ostensibly engaged to Maria, but that's kind of an arranged marriage in how they got Maria into the country. And even though Chino seems interested in Maria. Maria was saying from the start that she feels nothing when she's with Chino. Just because we're in the middle of a love story when it drops the bomb in the synopsis that, yeah, she has a fiancé already.
0: The other point of clarity, just because it may be confusing for listeners who, I don't know why you're listening if you haven't seen the film, but just in case, anybody's is the nickname for a Tom girl who hangs out with the jet. So Blaine's not really just saying anybody arrives but a person whose nickname is anybody's arrives and warn them about chino looking for tony so all
2: right so paul you may be the most familiar with this film would you have anything else to add or tweak in that synopsis
1: as far as the synopsis goes no (laughs) the one thing i just i just can't emphasize enough as we do this is to me this is an exception to that uncomfortableness people feel about musicals. Yes, it is silly when they when they start rumbling and they're, they're like doing ballet moves as they're fighting. It it's very silly, but the way this is directed and I think it was brilliant for them to uh split it up with the dance scenes and the action scenes or the dance scenes and the dramatic scenes. It all just it goes together seamlessly and I really just think people need to get by that prejudice. That's that's the only thing. It has nothing to do with the synopsis. I think the synopsis is fine. It explains the story. It, you know as you said so clearly. It's Romeo and Juliet. The other thing about this is I think you know one of the things one of the issues we had with with Gone with the Wind is can you watch this under the I with the idea of the time that it was made. You know this is made in 1961. Let's look at it a little bit with 1961 eyes when we start looking at the relationships between the different gangs. And, and, you know, the prejudices and all of that, I think there there is definitely, there are definitely messages that translate to today, but I do think you have to, you know, kind of tone it down a little bit in your mind with the fact that this is not meant to be current day. Yeah, and
2: I actually found that it worked better here than in Gone with the Wind, because while the racism is fairly rampant with people, you know, referring, the synopsis said white gang, but it was mostly an Italian gang people refer to that they refer to the the Puerto Rican gang as the PRs but as it all culminates now the wood specifically says hey, your racist hate is what caused this death so it's not glorified it's not being treated as okay it the element of racism is being called out as the reason that these people are dying
1: true very true
2: so i think that that helps that <laughs> that aspect go in with the audiences
0: it, and there's not there's not a good gang and a bad gang here.
1: Mm-hmm. There, There is, I mean, I think you are led to relate to the white gang, but the Puerto Rican gang is never shown as being bad, and they do show them, not so much the gang itself, but the key people in the gang, you know, in their natural home life and all of that, so that you understand these are regular people, these aren't. Yeah, we're not going into the you know the 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 negative stereotypes with them. We're we're gonna kind of let let them be shown as as you know. It's it's one of the things I've always said about racism, and you know I, I I hate to get too far into it, but I've always thought that the best way to solve racism is for people to understand that we're you know deep down inside we're all the same. You know that 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 different people aren't aren't really you know different on a fundamental level. And they're treated as such, and I think that's one of the the causes of racism. So I think this does a good job of showing that. You know, we never meet Maria's parents, but they do do a nice job when she's, oh, that's my papa with the the, the dressing doll and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I think they they show that this this is a normal family, and and I think I you know I can appreciate that very much.
2: Yeah, I think the filmmakers expected the audiences to identify more with the white gang but it is not written or depicted in a way such that one gang has the moral high ground over the other
1: now i think the big controversy of this now i remember when they first aired this on tv being the elder statesman in our crew <laughs> and that was the first time i saw it was when it aired on tv so i started looking When you know when was that i did remember i was in grade school at the time cause, because it was aired over two nights And I remember after the first night being in the schoolyard waiting for school to begin and everybody talking about it. You know, this was in the era when, uh, you know, you only had the network channels plus a couple of syndicated channels, and that was it. Right. So, you know, the audience would generally be all on one, you know, one thing. When there was was an event on, and this was an event, it was the first time, you know, a major Oscar-winning movie was aired, you know, everybody was watching the same thing. So the next day in the schoolyard, everybody was talking about it. people actually, you know, kids actually singing the songs from the from the movie and everything. And I was trying to remember exactly when that was and I did a quick little research and I found an article from the New York Times in April of 1972 and they mentioned that the show had aired a couple of weeks earlier. And their big concern was that school children were going to watch this and emulate gang violence. That was the concern. They weren't concerned about racism, they were concerned about violence. But You know, just to go back to to take it off of the concerns and go to that network premiere. You know, back that was back in the days. You know, again we didn't have that many channels. We're watching TV in our living room on a 19-inch set, and it was totally. It it, it just, I just, you know, was totally into it. You know, fixated on the TV the whole time uh, and loving every minute of this. And I think the movie, having seen it several times since is really designed for that. The, the way the music goes, the way that the, the score goes, the, uh, you know, the overture and everything, it really just pulls you in. And the cinematography, you know, it's it's dark and it's dank in parts, but it's beautiful in the way it's presented. This is just, to me, this movie is a masterpiece. Okay,
2: so we just heard how Paul was first exposed to it. How about you, Trey?
0: I'm going to confess, I first watched it for the podcast. Shame on you, Trey. I know, I know. <laughs> but no, I, I first watched it for this podcast. I'd been aware of it, but until my late 20s, most of my musicals were kind of limited to the Rodgers and Hammerstein catalog. So, you know, I'd seen things like Sound of Music and South Pacific and Oklahoma, um, but hadn't branched out much beyond that. I will say... I loved it on this viewing. The cast is top-notch, and we can go into each of them. I really loved uh, the direction and the cinematography, as you mentioned, Paul. I could tell that it was Robert Wise or someone of his uh, caliber with some of the screen dissolves and transitions. They were much more autourish than you would typically get in a musical of this vintage. And the songs are the songs are stellar. I knew most of the songs, even though I hadn't seen the musical before.
2: yeah, there are some of them like "I feel pretty," I think is one that gets referenced whether you've seen the movie or not
1: and and <laughs> I'm going to be controversial here. it bothers me. That because the definitions of words change over time, so we can't sing. Not that I'm walking around singing, I feel pretty anyway. <laughs> but, but you know, apparently they had to change the, you know, I feel, feel pretty and witty and gay. They had to get rid of the word gay in there. Gay is not allowed to just mean happy anymore, apparently. Mm. when they When they revived it on Broadway recently, apparently they changed the lyrics.
2: Okay, I can.
1: I can understand the reason, but it just bothers me that I feel like we're overly sensitive. There's nothing wrong with the word in my mind, personally.
2: No, it's just not the way the audience is going to interpret it because words do change over time. I mean, there was a time when awful just meant full of awe and not necessarily bad, just amazing. And after common use, same with ultimate. It technically just means last, but then marketing people said, this is the ultimate in this product. When you buy this one, you'll never have to buy another product again. And so, again, people are treating that as the best.
1: Yes, I understand that. And I, I just think, you know, you, you have to sometimes watch things with an eye towards when they're occurring. Now, this particular movie in play occurs in the late 50s, and I don't think I've ever seen a version of it where they've updated it to current day. It's always occurred at that time. And I've seen it on Broadway, and I've seen it off-Broadway, and I've seen the movie numerous times. So, I, I I don't know. I just think it's okay to have it, <laughs> have, it have those words in it. That's me. My own personal uh, thing is I, I just feel like when when you demonize a word, it, it has bad effect.
2: Well, I, I can see that. I'm just not sure they're necessarily demonizing it or saying, you know, will the audience hear the intent or will they, they have to adjust? So anyway, for my my own experiences, this was actually my second time viewing it. The first time I saw it would have been in 1993. And it was not ideal conditions. We actually watched it in class when we were studying Romeo and Juliet. But that particular English teacher, we saw a lot of film adaptations with that teacher. And she would start the movie and then go hang out in the staff room with her coffee and come back at the end of class. So when you had that opening score through the credits that she chose not to stay for, you lost some of the the class as the audience during that moment and never got them back so it was absolutely not ideal conditions because half the class was doing whatever the heck they wanted because we were completely unsupervised when the movies were going
1: as a teacher you need to stay until the audience is hooked and then you can walk away because i think this is the type of movie that if you give it a chance you will get hooked
2: with this grade 10 class, I just wouldn't walk away.
1: <laughs>
2: that It was just that kind of class. We probably watched about eight movies in the course of that semester, and the only time she came back during one of the movies was for another adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, where she had it timed so impeccably, she walked in the room five seconds before we saw Romeo's bare bottom and walked out of the room five seconds after he was off screen. And I checked with others because she did Romeo and Juliet grade 10, 11, and 12. That was her favorite Shakespeare. She watched these movies every time. She did that for every class in every grade. So she was an interesting teacher who would flirt with the students. So anyway, so that was my first exposure, and this was actually the second. And while it absolutely presents better, watched as one continuous viewing with, you know, I was actually the only one in the room, but yeah, as long as the full audience is engaged, you will have a much better response to it than I had originally. That said, I know, you know, Paul, you've said this is your favorite musical. To me, this does not rival Singing in the Rain. And some of it is because, like we said, we have to... There, There is a certain element where you ask, why are these people singing and dancing? And with Singing in the Rain, aside from a couple of very musical artists who are front and center, The only other time we see big productions is when they're actually filming a musical. So it's part of a, uh, you know, a rehearsed production. Here, I did have a tougher time with that. I could accept it in a lot of musicals when they kind of embrace that silliness and keep it very upbeat, but this is based on a tragedy. It is, you know, probably this and the musical episode of Buffy are probably the two most depressing musicals I've ever seen, right? They're... They have moments of cheerfulness, but overall, it it's not necessarily going to leave you walking out feeling good and happy about the world. Which here is absolutely the point. I just find it's a little bit of a style clash.
1: Well, when when would Romeo and Juliet ever have you walk out feeling happy about the world? I mean, it is exactly. You know, it's a classic story. It's a great story, but it's not an upbeat, uplifting story.
2: Oh, ab- absolutely. That that's just why I question whether Romeo and Juliet was well suited for a musical adaptation
0: I don't know because I think the way they structured the acts you're kind of coming up on a crescendo during act one and then you know act two um from I I feel pretty is still pretty upbeat but everything's kind of melancholy and subdued from that point forward
1: well we, we talked about the cinematography briefly, and the cinematography is also I, I think it's beautifully done, but it is muted throughout the whole movie and it does create that mood i think it it's there's, there's a contradiction very frequently with the story the mood from the cinematography which create together create that you know kind of negative or sadness to it almost an inevitability of of things going wrong. And the beauty of some of the score here, I mean, some of the music is absolutely beautiful. And it's, it is in its own way, unlifting, uplifting, excuse me. And I think it's, you know, it it's withstood the test of time. I think, you know, even to, to this day, a lot of, you know, people, a lot of singers who will sing, you know, these type of songs. Will still adapt songs like this. People like Michael Bublé will do songs from West Side Story. You know, Diana Crowell might do Di- something from West Side Story. I don't know if she does or not, but I'm just giving that type of artist. Right. Because because this music has has a, a, a you know a lot of it has has a, a very positive message. You know, the song somewhere. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's got a positive message despite the negativity of the ultimate you know, of ultimately what happens in this movie and this story.
2: Yeah, Maria and Tony are generally optimistic throughout because of what they're seeing, and that's part of it in the accurate adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. They meet and they're planning their wedding the next
1: day. So, And t- I'm just thinking about, like, the score. You know, Tonight is a very... it's 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 both a very aggressive song at times, and it's a very uplifting song at times. You know, you have Tony and Maria singing about how their, you know, life is going to be, you know, tonight's going to be a special night in their lives, where you know, in a positive way. And then you have the two, you know, you're in, intercutting that with the two gangs singing about how they're going to kill each other tonight. So, you know, there's definitely a contradiction there. But it, it's, again, the music is just so catchy. And then you throw in, you know, like a comic number like Officer Krupke. Again, you know, I, just, I, I could just put this this, this soundtrack on and, and listen to it very comfortably.
2: Yeah, the music is excellent, and in addition to the cinematography, the art direction is a little bit surreal, which I think does help accept that this is... It helps me accept that this is a musical, because it's... At no point do the sets feel like a real place. They feel like sets or a theatrical production, probably because of the design, and largely because of the way they chose to light them. So I think that does help, is it, it doesn't feel like it's our reality. It feels like it's a, their reality, where this might be more... Realistic.
0: It this is a really complex musical in a lot of ways, and I think you hit on something, Paul. You know, a, a lot of things in this musical have a double meaning. You know, you mentioned tonight America is a great song about the immigrant dream and the immigrant reality, right? And even G Officer Krupke, which was one of my favorite pieces. There are all of these people who say that they want to help and none of them give any kind of help, right? Even the themes. We've talked a lot about racism, but there's, I'm going to call it ageism for lack of a better word. There's a strong theme of the generation gap from Krupke to Doc. They're both coming from different places, but they don't understand the world that they've made that these kids live in.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, but, and, At least Doc is a very sympathetic character because he truly cares for these kids. And I I like that too. It's not, oh, he's the old guy and we just, you know, there's a generation gap, so the hell with him. You know, that's never presented that way. He doesn't understand and they'll say he doesn't understand, but there's an affection there that exists anyway.
2: Yeah, they respect each other even if they don't understand each other.
0: And he admits his own lack of understanding. I mean, you know. He's not saying it disdainfully when he's saying, "I don't, I, I don't. Why? Why do you have to do this?" You know.
1: Yeah, they did a really, really good job of adapting Romeo and Juliet, and not just saying, "Well, we're just going to do it." There's, there's clearly thought that's given to these characters and trying to make them, in trying to make them real to as much of an extent as you can with characters who are going to dance ballet in the middle of a fight. Uh, but but i i do think you know there there, there is a three dimensional quality to all of the characters that we focus on there are gang members who we don't focus on you know you see them and you recognize them cuz they come up every you know they're always there in the in the group scenes but characters like tony and maria and bernardo and and i'm trying to remember everybody's name now you know riff and uh what was uh, what was uh, anita anita was the name i couldn't remember uh, and Doc, and even Officer Krupke, they all, they're all they all given enough to be three-dimensional characters. They're not just, you know, they're not just stereotypes. And this this is a story that would be so easy to fall into stereotype.
2: So Shall we actually run through how it did at the awards? Sure. What was nominated? Sure. So this 34th ceremony was held on April 9th, 1962, hosted by Bob Hope. The Best Picture obviously went to West Side Story, beating out Fanny, The Guns of Navarone, The Hustler, and Judgment at Nuremberg. Our guest on the previous episode, Will Pfeiffer, did mention that his pick would have been The Hustler from this year. Best Director, it was won by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins for West Side Story, beating out Federico Fellini for La Dolce Vita, Jay Lee Thompson for The Guns of Navarone, Robert Rawson for The Hustler, and Stanley Kramer for Judgment at Nuremberg. Best Actor went to Maximilian Schell for Judgment at Nuremberg, beating out Charles Boyer in Fanny, Paul Newman in The Hustler, Spencer Tracy in Judgment at Nuremberg, and Stuart Whitman in The Mark. Best Actress went to Sophia Loren for Two Women, beating out Audrey Hepburn from Breakfast at Tiffany's, Piper Laurie from The Hustler, Geraldine Page from Summer and Smoke, and Natalie Wood, who is the star of West Side Story, the female lead, but she was nominated for her role in Splendor in the Grass. Best Supporting Actor went to George Shakiris from West Side Story as Bernardo, beating out Montgomery Clift from Judgment at Nuremberg, Peter Falk for Pocketful of Miracles, Jackie Gleason for The Hustler, and George C. Scott for The Hustler. Best Supporting Actress went to Rita Moreno for West Side Story, beating out Faye Bainter for The Children's Hour, Judy Garland for Judgment at Nuremberg, Lottie Lenya for The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, and Una Merkel for summer and smoke best story and screenplay written directly for the screen that went to splendor in the grass beating out ballad of a soldier la dolce vita general della rivera and lover come back best screenplay based on material for another from another medium went to judgment at nuremberg beating out breakfast at tiffany's the guns of navarone the hustler and west side story best foreign language film went to through a glass darkly beating out Harry and the Butler, Immortal Love, The Important Man, or and uh, Placido. Best Documentary went to Sky Above and Mud Beneath, beating out The Grand Olympics. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Project Hope, beating out Breaking the Language Barrier, Cradle of Genius, Call, and The Man in Grey. Best Live Action Short Subject went to Seawards, The Great Ships, beating out The Face of Jesus, Playball, Rooftops of New York, and Very Nice, Very Nice. Best short subject cartoons went to Surrogat. Uh, it was a Yugoslavian short, beating out Aquamania, Beep, Prepared, Nellie's Folly, and the Pied Piper of Guadalupe. Best musical score or dramatic, or of a dramatic or comedy picture, went to Breakfast at Tiffany's, beating out El Cid, Fanny, The Guns of Navarone, and Summer and Smoke. Best scoring of a musical went to West Side Story, beating out Babes in Toyland, Flower Drum Song. Kovanesh Kachina, and Paris Blues. Best Song went to Moon River from Breakfast at Tiffany's, beating out the title track from Bachelor in Paradise, the love scene from El Cid, the title track from Pocket Full of Miracles, and the title track from Town Without Pity. West Side Story was oddly not nominated for the Best Song category. I
0: find that to
1: be just mind-boggling, by
0: the way. So I looked. I looked that up, And to qualify for best song, it has to be a song originally written for the film. And being an adaptation of the Broadway play, they didn't write any new songs for West Side Story.
2: Okay, so because of the way the rules were set up, it just simply wasn't eligible.
0: If they had added an original piece somewhere for the film, it would have been, it would have qualified.
2: Okay, so that piece would have been eligible. All right, so that makes a little more sense. Best Sound, West Side Story won again, beating out The Children's Hour, Flower Drum Song, Guns of Navarone, and The Parent Trap. Best Art Direction, Black and White. The Hustler won, beating out Naps and Minor Professor, The Children's Hour, La Dolce Vita, and Judgment at Nuremberg. Best Art Direction, Color, went to West Side Story, beating out Breakfast at Tiffany's, El Cid, Flower Drum Song, and Summer in Smoke. Best Cinematography, Black and White, went to The Hustler beating out Absent-Minded Professor, The Children's Hour, Judgment at Nuremberg, and One, Two, Three, Best Cinematography, Color, went to West Side Story, specifically Daniel L. Fapp, who, by the way, also did the 1-2-3 cinematography, so he was nominated in both categories this year. Anyway, for the Color Cinematography, he beat out Fanny, Flower Drum Song, A Majority of One, and One-Eyed Jacks. Best Costume Design went to La Dolce Vida, beating out The Children's Hour, Claudel English, Judgment at Nuremberg, and Yojimbo, which was somehow not nominated in Best Foreign Language Film. Best Costume Design, Color, went to West Side Story, beating out Babes in Toyland, Backstreet, Flower Drum Song, and Pocketful of Miracles. So Irene Sharaf beat Edith Head, who was nominated for Pocketful of Miracles, and I think Edith Head is the woman with more Academy Awards than any other woman in the history of the Academy, if memory serves. Best Film Editing, West Side Story, Beating Out Fanny, Guns of Navarone, Judgment, Nuremberg, and The Parent Trap, and Best Special Effects, The Guns of Navarone, Beat Out, The Absamina Professor. Honorary awards went to William L. Hendricks, Fred L. Metzler, and Jerome Robbins for his brilliant achievements in art and choreography and film. So he co-directed West Side Story here. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Stanley Kramer. And the Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award went to George Seaton. All right. So, yeah. So with that, West Side Story and Judgment at Nuremberg were tied with 11 nominations for the most nominated films. And West Side Story won 10. The only other multiple award winners were Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Hustler, and Judgment at Nuremberg with two wins each. So we had... You know, The Hustler with nine nominations, Guns of Navarone with seven. We had four films with five nominations, some with four, with three, and with two. So a lot of multiply-nominated films. But West Side Story made such a sweep that there were very few multiple winners this year. Um, So having gone through those, how do you guys feel about the awards West Side Story did and did not win?
1: For Best Picture, the only one I've never seen is Fanny. I just never... Had the opportunity, and I, I, I don't know that I would. But I do have to admit that Judgment at Nuremberg, I've seen that, but seen it over. It, it took multiple viewings to get through it. I didn't like just sit down in the right in the optimum situation and watch it. That said, of the of the nominees, for me personally, there's no no contest. West Side Story would win it, even though I like well, the other the other three that I've seen very very much. I've talked about how. The Academy eventually kind of, in my opinion, stopped awarding best picture so much and started awarding most artsy picture or most picture with the best message or whatever it was they wanted to do. And I think it's become, I've disagreed with a lot of the choices. I think if this was 25 years later, Judgment at Nuremberg would have won and West Side Story would not. And I'm not talking about 25 years later in America. I'm just talking about 25 years later, the way the Academy voted. Direction-wise, I, I, I'm totally on board with them winning that. I don't think they had, truly had a Best Actor nominee. I don't think there was anybody in this movie that should be nominated for Best Actor. Natalie Wood could have been nominated for Best Actress, but she had already gotten the, the nod for Splendor in the Grass, and I don't think she was going to get two. I'm a little surprised that George Hikaris got it. Not that he doesn't deserve it, but there were so many acting performances that were all on the same level in this movie that i don't know that he stood out that he should be the one that would get it just the same i uh you know his performance is outstanding so i have no problem with that rita moreno i do think stood out i do think that no question in my mind she deserved that best supporting actress award i think she did a beautiful job in this movie west side story for best scoring the score in this movie is just phenomenal like I said, the overture is just amazing in my mind. So I, I have I, I have no, mind, no problem with that whatsoever. You've explained to me why Best Song didn't get it. So that makes total sense. Best Sound, to me, goes with Best Scoring. But there's also, in this particular movie, when there's the quiet scenes or when there's, you know, scenes where somebody's talking and, it, and there's an intensity to it. I do think the sound stands out in this movie. We talked about the cinematography, and, and by all means, it's great that it won. Editing, I have a tough time really comparing it to the other movies. I, I You know, I'd have to really look closely, so I can't comment on that one. And best costume design, I don't know. You know, it was, it was costumes, you know, it, it's a little hard to look at it in 2021 and say, hmm, how did they manage to get these costumes to look so good for you know circa 1957 when it was only 1961 that they were making it? <laughs> you know what I mean? It it just seems it almost seems unfair that you know these aren't these are just these aren't really throwback costumes. It's not a a, a so much of, of a period piece as it would seem now, but just the same, you know the costumes are very good <laughs> for what it's worth.
2: Yeah, but to capture the styles, they weren't. You know, it, it's not like you're doing a Victorian-era film now where you have to go back and say what technology did they had, how did they reproduce it, what were the buttons. This is, okay, go to the back of the closet.
1: Yeah, or even even to do it now for 1957. You know, if, if you're making a movie in 2021 for 1957, now you really have to pay attention to what the styles were then. But in 1961, to do it for 1957, I don't think it was that much of a challenge.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that... The- It was just the stuff that was in storage and ready to get purged.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Probably, yes.
2: Like, go go to the back of the closet. There's your stuff. But I think some of that could be because... I, I would imagine that part of the contribution to the best costume design is because the Jets and the Sharks had consistent fashion sense within the gang that was distinct from the other one. So in the crowd scenes, if they didn't have enough makeup to make the character look Puerto Rican... There was just something, you know, whether the shirt was open or closed and things like that, that would tell you which side they were on. So that might have been a contributing factor to that win.
0: I, I agree, Paul. And at, at the same time, you know, the only one that it was nominated for that it lost was Best Screenplay. You know, I don't know that I could necessarily argue that the screenplay was superior to the screenplay of Judgment at Nuremberg. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that, with that loss there.
1: Agreed. I, I think, especially when you, when you're doing a an, an an excuse me an adaptation of a Broadway show, and you're not you know it's not so much an original screenplay at this point. I I do think it's pretty true. I I believe it's pretty true to the play. I don't think there were dramatic changes. But then I have to say I did I have seen it performed twi- live twice, but those are both subsequent to the movie. So I don't know if there were tweaks to the original screenplay, you know, or the original script that adapted it to the movie so much. That I can't speak to.
0: And and let me talk about that just a little bit. In terms of the films we've covered on the show, we're at a transition period of the musical. You know, we've gone through essentially vaudeville and Ziegfeld Follies adapted for the screen to... I've got a music department and a catalog of music and let me try and fit a movie around that singing in the rain, probably being the most successful of that particular type. Now we're hitting Broadway adaptations to where you've got a book of music that's very specifically tuned to a um, story that was kind of road tested for lack of a better word already on, Broadway, so we're we're seeing the musical continue to adjust and change.
2: Yeah, I could see that personally going through these nominations. There's really only two wins for West Side Story that I would question. Everything else, I completely support. One of them is Best Supporting Actor. So in addition to what Paul said about how you know, there's a question about why they cho- or they chose George Shakiris when there were a number of possible ones. I mean, I, you know, I might have gone for Doc or one of the police officers instead. But from that list of nominations, I would have gone with Jackie Gleason from The Hustler. So now some of that we've talked before, speculated that maybe how pleasant that person is in real life has an impact on how many votes they get, which is just my speculation for why Hitchcock struggled to win a competitive award. Despite his list of films and the real life Jackie Gleason was Carol O'Connor's primary inspiration in bringing Archie Bunker to film because he was a lot like Archie Bunker', so that may not have gone over well as the equal rights movements were starting to build. Um, the only other one I might question is the the best picture just because the for me, there is a little bit of a stock clash to have a musical was such a tragic story. of the nominees, though, I've only seen this in The Hustler so far. So I'm not able to definitively say, you know, yes, one is better than the other. We will see how history holds up when we look at the average rankings on Letterboxd and IMDb in a moment. So I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm saying that's one where I have doubts. So do we want to go on to the Golden Globe nominees now? Sure, sure. Okay, um, so Golden Globe gave Best Drama to the Guns of Navarone. And I think just for the sake of time, I'll skip the other nominees that didn't win unless West Side Story is one of them. Best Comedy went to a majority of one. Best Film for a Musical went to West Side Story. Best Actor in a Drama, Maximilian Schell for Judgment at Nuremberg. Best Actress in a Drama, Geraldine Page for Summer and Smoke. Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical went to Glenn Ford for Pocketful of Miracles. I think I need to track this movie down. Best Actress for Comedy and Musical went to Rosalind Russell for a majority of one. Uh, oh, and I should mention, uh, for Best Actor, Richard Boehmer was nominated for West Side Story, where he played Tony. Best Supporting Actor, again, George Shakiris for West Side Story. Best Supporting Actress, Rita Marino for West Side Story. And remember, the supporting categories are not divided by genre. Best Director, Stanley Kramer won for Judgment at Nuremberg. He, although... Uh, Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins were nominated for West Side Story. Best foreign language film went to Two Women. The Silver Globe went to The Good Soldier Schweik and The Important Man. Those are films from West Germany and Mexico. Best music original score went to The Guns of Navarone. Best song went to Town Without Pity. Best film promoting international understanding went to Majority of One. Most promising newcomer, male. Uh, the three winners were Warren Beatty. Who showed up in splendor in the grass? Richard Bamer, who was Tony, and Bobby Darren, and the honorable mention was George C. Scott for his newcomer role in The Hustler. Most promising newcomer, female. Uh, the three winners were Anne Margaret, Jane Fonda, and Christian or Christine Kaufman, uh, beating out Pamela Tiffin and Cordula Trantow. The Henrietta Award for the World Film Favorites went to Charlton Heston and Marilyn Monroe. And then for television, the best TV shows were What's My Line and My Three Sons, Best TV Star Male, Bob Newhart and John Daly. Female was Pauline Frederick. A Special Journalistic Merit Award went to Army Archard for a daily variety and Mike Connolly for The Hollywood Reporter. A Special Merit Award went to Samuel Bronston for El Cid. Samuel Golan Award went to The Mark. And the Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Judy Garland. So do you guys have any particular thoughts on the Golden Globes?
1: Nothing in particular jumps out at me, to be honest with you.
2: Oh, yeah. One other thing that's worth mentioning, again, for Best Actress Drama, or Best Actress, they did nominate Natalie Wood for Splendor in the Grass rather than West Side Story.
1: Yeah, I I don't think, as I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the Academy Awards, I I I think it's hard to consider that to be an insult that she didn't get two, two nominations. I think they chose mm-hmm. the one that they felt was a superior performance, and that's the one they nominated it for, and I think that's okay. Yeah. I, I haven't seen Splendor in the Grass in a long, long time, and to be fair, when I did see it, it's not like it's something that I was, you know, riveted to the screen for. So I can't really give you a true comparison of her performances.
2: Yeah, I think I saw it when I was nine, and romance films weren't my thing. And at that point, the only two love stories I cared about were Superman and Lois and Snake Eyes and Scarlet. So, again, I will also say yes, Blood in the Grass, I cannot offer an informed opinion at this point.
0: So, you mentioned Full of Miracles, maybe wanting to check that out, Blaine. Yeah. That is Frank Capra remaking himself. So, I, I have not seen Pocketful of Miracles yet, but I've seen the original Lady for a day, and it was best film nominee back in the early 30s. So at least that version's worth checking out. But looking at the cast, uh, Pocket Full of Miracles, I probably need to put on my
1: watch list as well. I would agree also. And really the, the bottom line is I've never seen a Frank Capra movie that I didn't at least enjoy. I'm not going to say they're all great, but they're all at least good. Yeah,
2: I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I've never regretted spending, taking the time to watch a Capra film. All right, so... Looking at Letterboxd, so how those viewers have rated the films of 1961 over the years, keeping in mind not all these would have been eligible for the Oscars, because Letterboxd is doing, you know, it has a lot of foreign film representation, and in order to be eligible for the Academy Awards, it had to air in Los Angeles in 1961. So their number one pick is The Human Condition 3, A Soldier's Prayer. Second pick of the year is Yojimbo which we did mention was nominated, but only for uh, one of the technical awards and not the best foreign language film.
1: And what we can say is, uh, if you follow Is It Yours, at some point you will hear the three of us talking about your Jimbo. I think, if all works out the way I think it does, that will have already been on before this comes.
2: Uh, Most likely, because we're... I am a teacher in my day job, and now I'm a new parent, so we tend to record... Nine in the Year's 100 films about a year in advance, and I do massive blocks of editing in the school breaks. So we are recording this in October 2021, and you're probably going to hear it, or your first opportunity for the audience to hear it will be September 2022. From there, of the nominees, Judgment at Nuremberg is the highest rated. It's the fifth top film for the year. The Hustler is 12th. And then while there are some notable films in between, like Viridania, uh, Raisin in the Sun, Divorce Italian Style. By the time we get to the next Best Picture nominee, it is West Side Story, and it's 43rd on the list. But there's a lot of representation of foreign film this year, which, as we said, doesn't necessarily do well with the Academy because they can't always watch it in the original language. Splendor in the Grass did come in at number 35. And then below West Side Story, we other notable nominees this year include Breakfast at Tiffany's, and uh, The Guns of Navarone. And Fanny does not appear in the top 72 films of the year. So going by letterbox users, it sounds like of the films nominated, they would have picked Judgment at Nuremberg.
1: As I said, if, if it was a modern day uh, voting, I have no doubt that Judgment at Nor- Nuremberg would win. Although, I prefer West Side Story, personally.
2: Yeah, and that is one thing to keep in mind when we're looking at the IMDb and Letterboxd ratings, just because of when these came into being, they are going to be biased for the modern sensibilities, just because you know IMDb started as a Usenet, our series of Usenet posts, and I think about 1985, and I don't know if you could actually vote on them until moved to the World Wide Web in the 90s.
1: What what I can speak to as far as the modern sensibilities is. My daughter, who is now 21, but I guess this would be when she was probably about 16 or 17, was a big fan of the, sh- the show Glee. So, you know, you, you can figure off that, that she had a uh, a love for musicals at that point. And she and some of her friends had been talking, and apparently she, you know, West Side Story came, came under her radar. So one night, the two of us sat down, and we watched it on uh, Netflix at the time, and she really enjoyed it. And we said then, I guess it may have even been a little longer ago than I'm saying, but whatever the case may be, we said, the next time that this is done in a play, let's go and see it. So, long story short, we, you know, they eventually showed it in an off-Broadway production with all Broadway actors. So, you know, it was a very professional production, but we ended up going, both of my kids went, and we went with a group, there were probably about 10 of us that went. Everyone loved it, including the two kids who had, you know, never really had it that much exposure to it. And that's the play. But it's just talking about the story in general. I do think it does translate to a younger audience if they have the incentive to sit down and watch it. And that's that's been my experience.
2: Anyway, uh, continuing with the IMDb voters. They've actually picked the same top two films as Letterboxd in the same order. So it's Human Condition 3, A Soldier's Prayer, and then Yojimbo, both of which are Japanese films. And both of which actually star uh, Tetsuya Nakade. He was uh, a villain in Yojimbo, and he was the hero in Human Condition 3, and he usually played the hero. He was actually... uh, They pushed off production of Human Condition 3 because the director said, no, 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 people need to see you in a variety of roles. Go do Yojimbo first. And then... The third best movie of the of the year is Judgment at Nuremberg. Just scrolling down, they have other things like Divorce Italian Style. They've got The Hustler at number 13, Splendor in the Grass at 17. We are restricting to movies with at least 1,000 votes that came out in that year. Breakfast at Tiffany's is 31, and then West Side Story comes in at 33. I think having seen Breakfast at Tiffany's and West Side Story, I'm more in line with Letterboxd viewers saying that West Side Story is the superior film of those two. So I do if you guys had anything to add on those.
0: I watched some foreign film, but not a ton, but I I feel like it's lower represented in both lists than
1: it should be. Agreed. I, I think this movie has suffered a little from time and that it's just not looked at as being in this era, and I think that's sad, honestly, because I think it is you know, I think I've, I've made my love of this movie very clear so I, I really wish it would find a bigger audience in modern day
2: Sure okay. Yeah, I could agree, like I said, it's very well made I question partly based on seeing how high Judgment Nuremberg has scored on these even though I haven't seen Judgment at Nuremberg I question whether it should have been the number one pick, but Yeah, that would be putting it up against a three-hour drama directed by Stanley Kramer with Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, Richard Widmark, and Marlene Dietrich. That's the one-sentence synopsis on IMDb. Here is in 1948, an American court in occupied Germany tries four Nazis judged for war crimes.
1: Yeah, I think I think you could easily look at the subject matter of that movie and say, okay, it has more gravitas clearly, and then you could look at the quality of the actors that are in it and the director for that matter and say, you know, this is a movie that that's made for the Academy to love. And and I think it's it's one of these ones where it probably would take a little bit more effort to immerse yourself in it. But if you do, it's probably very rewarding. But, you know I, I don't know. You know, I, I go back to the old days at the video store or, you know, maybe if we want to just bring that to modern, you know, you you're looking at your streaming service and they're sitting there side by side. <laughs> I just find West Side Story, even though it's got a depressing you know, final outcome to it, because it's Romeo and Juliet, I just find it to me a more enjoyable experience overall. And that that, that factors into to my reigning process of movies. Sometimes I'll look to the acting quality and the directing quality and the score. In fact, I'll always look at those things. But I'm also going to judge it by just general enjoyment. And that's where I think the Academy in modern day, has kind of forgotten that. And I think that's had them award Best Picture to a lot of movies that are just not enjoyable to watch.
2: Yeah, seeing that that summary and that cast for Judgment at Nuremberg, I can imagine watching it would be an incredibly powerful experience, but it could be one of those extremely well-made movies that's just hard to watch a second time.
0: I've encountered this a lot on... My quest to watch through my movie uh, catalog and what I have available on streaming and whatnot. There are times when films come up that I've seen before. So, like, in preparing for this podcast, out of the nominees, the only one I had seen before was Hustler. And it was like, ooh, The Hustler, because I've seen it a couple of times, and, you know, I like it. Breakfast at Tiffany's popped up on my list because it was in one of the most popular I had seen it before, but I wasn't like, ooh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know. I didn't begrudge watching it again either, but it just wasn't, despite its provenance, Breakfast at Tiffany's isn't a go-to movie for me. You know, if I'm doing something like this again, you know, 10 years on, and I'm, you know, what should I watch from 1962? I think I would be, ooh, West Side Story, you know. So that's why I think it's a more under...
1: Rated in those lists than it should be. Totally agree. That's I think you're largely encapsulating my view there.
2: Yeah. Who would you recommend this
1: to? I would recommend it to anyone who can get by <laughs> the, the prejudice of musicals. You know, of the song and dance musical. You know, where where singing and dancing isn't necessarily intrinsic to the plot where, where you know, you just have to think, okay, they live in a world where people do this. <laughs> that's all. But if you're able to do that, if you're able to watch it and, you know, it, it's the same as watching Greece I'm trying to think of other movies. I, you know, I never did see La La Land, but I got the feeling that's similar also, which was popular recently. But anybody who can sit and do that, I think, could get a positive experience out of this. And I really wouldn't limit it to a specific age group. I mean obviously a very young kid would probably not be good with just the violence of it. Uh, so I think you'd have to be over over eight or nine years old. But other than that, anybody who can uh who can get by the prejudice of, of musicals.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm gonna say I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but just based off of what you shared, Paul, and my own experiences, I I think this I I think this is popular with,
1: or would be popular with teenage girls. I agree. I think that that would probably be the prime audience to to put. But like I said, I I do remember this airing when I was in elementary school and everybody was talking about it. You know, it wasn't just the girls, the guys were talking about it, everybody. So I I do think it it translates beyond that. I think that might be the audience where it's most popular, but I do think it translates beyond that.
0: Um, And I'd say that because I... I haven't had the ability to take her to go see a live performance of it, but my daughter's ears perked up when she heard that this was this month's selection for the podcast. And, you know, she had done her own viewing of it and really loved it.
2: I would say, you know, I think I've been the most down on it of the three of us by only saying, yeah, it's excellent. It just may not be the best of the year so again it is easy to recommend and i think with paul's caveats that if you're willing to accept that it is a musical and old enough to handle the fact that people do kill each other then yes go for it
0: i'll i'll be interested to see how these lists change beginning of next year just because i'm as we're recording this spielbergs adaptation of West Side Story is supposed to come into theaters late November, right? So I'm wondering if that will give
1: this a bump. I think it might. Uh, I do think there was a bump for uh, the prior three versions of A Star is Born when the Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper one came out. So I could see this getting a bump also. If it's, you know, if, if Spielberg lives up to what we know Spielberg to be.
0: I think maybe it was Rob Kelly on either Final Cut or Film and Water I Someone made the equivalence of Robert Weiss was probably the closest thing to Steven Spielberg before Steven Spielberg, so there's kind of a neat symmetry in him choosing that as his musical to add to his um, body of work.
2: Yeah, and I just uh, pulled that up. So, yes, the the Spielberg remake... It looks like it's due December 10th. Okay. So, yeah. So for those of you who are listening, yes, this came out before that was released. But you would have had plenty of opportunity to see the remake before watching this one. They had to do some negotiation. But, yes, they did bring uh, Rita Moreno back. Not as Anita. But she's playing uh, Valentina, who apparently is equivalent to Doc in this version.
1: Well, it's the, the cast of this movie, uh, the surviving cast, are all, you know, in their late eighties at this point. So there's only so much you can do with them. Uh, Rita Moreno, although mm-hmm. I have to say I've seen her on TV in the not too distant past. Someone uh, gave her like a, a blessing of youth.
2: Yes. She will actually turn ninety the day after the remake comes out.
1: I, I think she could hold up through it, but I think she might be the, the rarity.
2: Yeah, looking at recent pictures, I would not have pegged her as almost 90. I would have said, yeah, if I didn't know how old West Side Story is, if you just showed me a photo and said, guess this woman's age, I'd have you know, been wrong by
1: a couple of decades. Yeah, I would say, again, having seen her in the not-too-distant past, I probably would put her at somewhere in her early to mid-70s. And that's, you know, for somebody who's coming up on 90, that's a great thing. God bless it. All
2: right. Yeah. And some of our younger listeners may know her as the voice of Carmen Sandiego from that (laughs) 1990s cartoon. She's been doing a lot of voice acting lately. I, I first got to know her as Hey You Guys from Electric Company, which she did 780 episodes of.
1: I first got to know her as Anita from West Side Story.
2: All right. So any final thoughts?
1: Well, just thank you guys for having me on here to talk about you know a movie that would be very high on my all-time rankings, and for what it's worth, for my own show, it's Jaws.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who doesn't get that reference is heavily, heavily encouraged to go check out Is It Jaws? It's one of the podcasts that Paul's a part of on the Tutor Freaks Network. One of several, I believe, so recently, at least as of the time of this recording, recently wrapped up Listen to the Prophets and now moved on to Tune Trek, plus back to the bins. Am I missing anything?
1: No, that's it. You know, I, I do. <laughs> I am required to be a father and a husband otherwise, <laughs> so I can only put so many hours a week into it.
2: Okay. Yeah, and actually, by the time you guys hear this, Tune Trek would be close to wrapping as well. Right. Are you doing the bi-weekly skate?
1: Yeah, we're going to do the bi weekly schedule on that as well. And uh, by then, we'll probably have figured out what we're going to do after Toontrack.
2: Okay, so you guys will be hearing this right around the time Toontrack ends, which is going through the original Star Trek animated series. Because at the time of this recording, one episode has come out, and it's a 22 episode run. So that's about 11 months. All right, so, uh, yeah, so Paul, thanks for coming on. I've got nothing else to add about West Side Story. Trey, did you have anything to add before we tell people what we'll be? Checking out next month.
0: No, I uh, just a pleasure to have Paul on. As always, a lot of great conversation. So I'm, um, I'm looking forward to the to the next time. Either we can lure him back, or I can sneak onto
1: his show. Well, that's that's pretty much uh, open on both ends. Whenever you know, we'll always find time to have you on. Is it yours? And I'll always find time to come on this show. So we they will happen.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. We could talk him into coming back about 15 episodes from now.
0: <laughs> if you make him an um, offer, he couldn't refuse. Actually, that's going to only be about
1: 10 episodes from now.
2: Yeah, that's 11. So
1: 11, 11 and 13, if you're really <laughs> yeah. so inclined. But uh, that's a story for, an, or a discussion for another day.
2: Yes. All right. And, yeah, so to our listeners. Next month, we will be taking a look at Lawrence of Arabia, which beat out The Longest Day, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, Mutiny on the Bounty, and To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, I'm familiar with a couple of those, and the two I know well are excellent. So that could make for an interesting discussion, since Lawrence of Arabia is not one of the two. All right, and yeah, so for listeners, thank you for listening.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.
1: My mom always said, life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir, I
2: want some more.